Summer, thank you for hanging out with me this morning. It's been yes, thanks really, for having me. Yeah, it's been really delightful getting to know you. Uh, we've only talked one other time, and uh, and so I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to talk with you again this morning. And thanks for putting up with all the technical issues we've had. So, yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah, equally so on my part. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Man, of course. All right, Summer. So I would really love for you to, to share your story. Uh, as, as an autistic BCBA, I think that we have a lot that we can learn from you and your background. So uh, I'd love for you to share as, as much as you want regarding kind of your background and, uh, and your, your story. Okay. Um, I think I might just start out with sharing uh, my personal story with autism and um, I guess we'll just go from there. Yeah, um, my story follows a pretty standard uh, presentation of autism in um, reliably speaking persons, um, assigned female at birth persons, um, and probably more so for my age range as well, considering, you know, we don't use Asperger's diagnosis anymore. Um, however, it, it was in the DSM, added to the DSM in the early 90s. And seeing as how I was born in the 80s, uh, it, it would make sense that, you know, some of these things <laughs> would not be covered. Um, and a lot of us would fall through the cracks, especially assigned female at birth persons. Um, I did receive a few different diagnoses that covered uh, much more of the presentation of autism in girls without an actual autism diagnosis uh, due to the diagnostic criteria being specifically for um, white, younger males. So yeah, there were definitely markers in my younger years, but my behaviors were more socially appropriate or acceptable um, outwardly. However, you know, I still struggled, um, probably still needed support. <laughs> um, I have a wonderful mother who structured my life in such a way where um, I was able to thrive. Uh, smaller school sizes, she was in direct contact with teachers. She was very involved in um, kind of everything I did, you know, to include my special interests. Uh, she would let me read the same encyclopedia, you know, over and over. And she was like, well, it's my smart baby, you know, but you know, kids don't really do that. They don't really have hash marks and encyclopedias. How many times, you know, just the, just the little things. And she, my mom's so endearing. She was like, ah, yeah, she's just different. And I mean, she was right. Um, so that's kind of what we call the social model of disability is, is, supporting the environment and the structure around a person in such a way that they are able to thrive. Um, and I did still need support to learn some cool things. So um, after I left that experience of being home and fully supported uh, into going to university, which, you know, the majority of us have that experience, um, instantly disabled. <laughs> There was just so much that I couldn't account for, um, didn't know how to manage um, scheduling, the logistics of managing a large campus, also, you know, over, over 500 students in a math class, um, all the sounds and smells and expectations. And it's just, it was so complex and I did not do very well. <laughs> 
so moved to a smaller university and I was accommodated and I thrived there. It was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, but we can fast forward to thirties, new environment, no support, no accommodations, disabled. And this is around the time that I um, did receive my ASD diagnosis, which, you know, after that, I cried a lot. I was like, oh man. And it wasn't like, uh, you know, I'm upset about anything. I was like, oh, all this, all of these things make sense. All these things that I've, I've grown to be like, God, you know, you just don't get it. And, you know, all of those things started just to fall in line. I'm like, hmm, maybe I'm just not, you know, I needed, I obviously needed support, but trying to find that at, you know, between 30 and 40 is a lot different. You find that in mental health counseling and not with family and friends. So <laughs> anyway, that's kind of in a nutshell, my autism story. Yeah, that's, man, I, I love hearing you share that story because it, it, uh, it gives just insight into what it was like for you as a kid. And I, I love hearing you talk about your wonderful mom who was just like so pivotal in helping you to thrive. And, and I learned something in, in talking with you that when you, when you describe that as the social model and how important that was to, to have a mom who was willing to go through and uh, do all of the, do all of the, the, you know, the hard work of, of helping you to be successful. So that was super helpful. Uh, and then just hearing about your struggles and when those supports were removed, how those like struggles came back or new struggles emerged. So it's all very helpful context summer. Uh, I, I have another question. So how has being, how's being autistic helped you as a BCBA? So you're a BCBA, you're practicing, you serve, you know, you serve, uh, uh, kids and families, I imagine. So like, how has being autistic helped you as a BCBA and doing the work that you do today? Um, it's hard to explain aside from other than it, it looks different. Um, there's a, none of us are the same. You know, like every single person is different. Um, every single autistic person is different. Um, I, and I also believe that even with like some of the sensory challenges that I have, I'm able to pick up on things that, you know, either parents or teachers or whatever, like, no, they have to go through this. And like, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, a, it's definitely going to add to the quality of their life. But can we can we look at it and try it this way or like this really seems to be affecting them and, and the whole, Oh my gosh, I didn't even notice that. So picking up on some of those variables that because you don't experience what that feels like, um, I'm able to, I'm able to make pretty good progress with, with, um, helping people because it's like, no, let's figure out what's hard about this first and then let's start teaching how to move through that. So, I think my, you know, the uh, me being autistic has definitely helped to inform that lens. Yeah, absolutely. I can see how that would be the case. Now, last time you and I talked, we had, I, I just asked you an honest question, Summer, because these are the types of things that I think about as a behavior analyst, but I shared the the example uh, of the, the tag on the shirt. And I was like, so Summer, like, What's the right answer here? Because, you know, like my, my training might have, might have, uh, at one point I might've said, okay, that's a priority, right? Like as a, as a young behavior analyst, I would have said, let's address this situation where the kiddo, you know, isn't able to wear a shirt with a tag. So let's work on that. Or we're not able to wear the karate uniform. That's another thing I've, I've worked on in my centers. It's like, 
kid will not wear the karate uniform. So mom, send it in, come in at the last 15 minutes of your session. And we're going to, we're going to try putting this karate uniform on together, you know, using reinforcement and, and any strategy and tactic that, that seemed appropriate at the time. Uh, so we talked about this and I was like, Summer, so what's the right answer today? You know, like what, how do we go about addressing things like the tag on the shirt? And, and, and that's going to like, I, we're going to use this question to get to our next question, which is more directly related to the controversies that we're encountering today. But I'd love to, I'd love for you to share with the audience this, uh, you know, our conversation that we had the other day about the tags on the shirts. Sure. So, you know, tagging on the shirts is a pretty simple thing. Um, it, I think you can get into more complex things. And as BCBAs, it's really, really important that we, before I go into the tags, that we know our um, our limitations and that we really understand our the people that we support. So, you know, tackling something um, exposure-wise, and that's this is what this is, you know, it's a... Um, there, there's two classifications of that because some kids can eventually there, you know, there are comorbid, um, diagnoses with autism. Um, later on they can develop OCD or, or different things. So I'm not talking about those specific individuals. I'm, I'm talking about accommodations. So if anyone hears this, um, this, that's not what I'm talking about. So definitely please get some insight from people that are working with that kind of population, because those things kind of steamroll into other things. This is a simple, my kid doesn't like the way the tag feels. Okay. So that's, that's where we're starting out with that. Okay. Um, there are ways to accommodate a person's sensory needs and absolutely. And it will lead to less frustration in just general skill development, um, within the setting. And we, I know in Greg Hanley's group, um, they call it tux or time under cooperation. So you can extend that time because the person's not constantly feeling the tag digging in mm-hmm. into them. And that feeling is not just like, oh, it's uncomfortable. No, you can feel it through your whole body. And it's really hard to sit still if you're uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, my, my question to you is why can't we just buy clothes without tags? Like, that's a thing now. Target offers a whole line of clothes without really cute clothes, without tags, um, all the way up to adulthood. Like it's not, it's not really a, you know, a, a, a thing to kind of harp on. Um, or if you want to teach a life skill and, and it, it'd be like, you, I, I want to teach this person to advocate for themselves um, in this manner, teach them through that. Be like, hey, if it's safety, if the kid can safely do it, teach them how to bring clothes in and let them remove tags. Um, because chances are the sensitivities aren't going to go away. And this is something that you could teach that they could take through their lifetime. Uh, so I guess the, the main point of this is you can definitely do like a risk benefit analysis of outcomes as it relates to exposure. Um, it really need to have like a trauma background, understand your learner, all of those things. And um, Dr. Kolu's work at Cusp Emergence, she's got some really awesome tools to help you learn how to do that. And um, I believe I will share those that information so you can have that with this talk. Um, but they're not, you know, working on something so trivial as a tag. And and that's my concern is like for the field when we're just like, oh, the parent doesn't like it, so we're going to work on it. You know, something so trivial to exposure 
can eventually lead to harm if you're if the if the if the, the person we're supporting is doing it for the sake of insert whoever, um, but it still affects them throughout their day. And I know we had talked about, you know, ABC, where it's like A, 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 B. Well, why don't we remove one of those A's? You know, maybe we need to fade it back in because it's something that we can't reliably make sure isn't there. But right now I need to teach them this. So let's remove one of those A's, right? So I don't know. It's just one of those antecedent events that, you know, could eventually lead up to a behavior and you're working on the wrong thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that in having that conversation with you, it it was like when I, when I first, when I first asked you that question, it seemed like such a, it did seem like such a trivial thing, but it matters. And like, I have, I'll have families that ask me those questions. Like Rob, what if like, are you going to, are you really going to push my, my kiddo or like my, my child to like tolerate a tag. And the answer, the answer that, you know, that I would have given them 10 years ago or 15 years ago is different than the answer I would give them today. I think like really learning who the individual is and, and also understanding like, is this really a priority to the family is, is critical in a, in a way that maybe I, I just hadn't thought, uh, hadn't thought about in the past. So really just being as, as compassionate as we can be as behavior analysts. And you really like, you took it next level in terms of my understanding. Like you said, you just said that it's not just, you know, like they might feel that tag through their whole bodies. And so like, it could be so distracting for them. And so to your point, like, is this really worth it? Like, I'd rather have a, I'd rather have a learner who's, who's, you know, happy, relaxed and engaged uh, uh, over like, you know, not having a tag in their shirt. Right. So I think that there's, I think that there's a lot of wisdom in, in kind of the process that you just worked us through. So thank you, Summer. So we talked, we talked tags. Now I want to like jump right into the, the, the current issue. The reason why we're talking is, is what's happening with, uh, with ABAI and um, the presentation that was included regarding uh, electroshock. So uh, I'd love to just hear your perspective on that. You have uh, you have immense context, and I think you could provide a lot of guidance to us as behavior analysts in terms of uh, you know another way to be thinking about this from from a perspective you know from your perspective. So I'd love to just kind of hear your thoughts on on the the issue at hand. Okay. Well, I um, you know I I as a person I don't care what the what what the the topic is I don't like necessarily taking sides um, and especially having position statements on organizations when, you know, the organization as a whole, that, that's, it's kind of hard for me personally to wrap my head around and conceptualize a position statement on that. However, when it comes to CESS, um, contingent electric skin shock, I, I think it's disgusting um, I, I am ashamed that it's in our toolbox, that it's something, a repertoire of things that have been done for decades. And, um, I feel like to me, it's not a, like, oh, you're on the side or that side. No, it's a human rights issue. And we are, we're getting this wrong. Um, I feel like we can't say that we're not harmful you know, and in our new ethics code, it says do no harm for the first time and how long. Finally, it's been put in there. But even those of us who don't use aversives, um, you know, just 
we need to get this right. We do. As, as a collective, we need to get this right. Um, I, I do hold a value of extreme ownership because I do sit I, in the, that weird space of I belong to this community. And I'm also, I also belong to behavior analysis. And um, finding a way to exist in both, this is one of those things that I just refuse to budge on. Um, and we haven't done enough to make it be like, you know, this is all there is because I, I hear, I hear the argument of, you know, there's the severe self-injury and, and life-threatening self-injury. And I can, I, I can sympathize and empathize with how hard that must be to not have anything else to provide this person, but to say like, I'm going to prevent you from harming yourself by harming you. There's a gap there. There's a there's a definite gap there in understanding, and um, I won't say you know all the harms are in the applied side. I know we had kind of conversed back and forth on this, but there's a research gap, um, and and to say that you know you or me or you know the next BCBA down the street, we should feel upset and slighted that we don't have the tools necessary to address this. <laughs> um, and, and the barriers, I understand the barriers. We, we can't, we can't fully obtain consent or assent. I also think that that's a, in a way, a little bit of a cop out because there are people that um, are with these individuals that can help us learn what that looks like, can help us inform the research, um, and 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 to say like, oh, this is such an issue now. It it hasn't been. That's the thing that really gets me is you know there's been pickets and there's been advocacy and there's for 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 decades uh, on this. And because it's happening now and more BCBA or the internet, social media, all of the things that you, you can't ignore it. But just because now you can't ignore it, you're gonna potentially, mm, I, I just have, I, it just seems bad faith to me. You know, I'm, I'm happy it's happening, but there are people that have been doing this for so long. And I would like to, you know, actually state that, you know, autistic Hoya, who you can find her resources, um, their resources, I'm sorry, their resources and, um, read their accounts. Also, Jennifer Mustamba, um, you can find her on Instagram. She she lived through it, and the the beautiful thing about following Jennifer is she's on the other side of it, and she's thriving. And I'm sorry, um, it can't just be us in this vacuum. We have to continue to reach out and, you know, no autistic, verbal autistic person is speaking for any other. But to some degree, we understand that the behavior that you're seeing is more than behavior. There's, there, we need a multidisciplinary teams to come together for research, um, neuroscience, neurobiology, um, just all of these things to help a population who... And I would say, you know, the ID population is completely thrown under the bus in all of our research. Um, and it doesn't have to be. 
and and they experience things on a on a on a much larger and deeper scale than than you know some of the less support needs I, I hate these terms but people like me however you know sensory issues and things like that I I I wonder um every day you know even when I have a hard day and I'm able to say I don't I need to leave this space because I'm overloaded or gosh, I really don't like that smell. I'm going to come over here knowing that that will eventually make me get sick. What about the people who can't? And then we put in these, these procedures um, because it eventually leads to aggression, but it's, you know, uh, deemed automatic, you know, attention, escape, like all the things. And I just feel there's not enough there. There's not, we haven't done enough to say this is all there is. Summer, you, you kept saying that we have to get this right. We have to get this right. And I, I love that. And I, I, I understand what you're saying. We, we do have to get this right. And this whole, like, in me reaching out and doing these, these interviews, it was in that spirit. It's like, I'm not sure what the answer is. I'm just one behavior analyst with a relatively, you know, limited, I'm I'm a one behavior analyst. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm, I'm one, I have one perspective and it's, it's mine. And I thought what we needed more than anything as a field right now is to hear from people like you, and to hear from a diverse group of people who have different perspectives and to have dialogue because we have to get this right. You're absolutely spot on about that. And we're not trying to create sides. It's not the intent of this at all. It's really like, I, I, I hope that these conversations really bring people together, unify us as a scientific community, as a, as a compassionate group of behavior analysts who really set out to, to lovingly serve the people that we've been entrusted to serve. And I agree. We have to get this right, even though we're not sure what the answers are. Like, there's just a lot of like to me. There's a lot of question marks. I have so many questions, and and by the way, I have more questions each day than I'm getting answers for. So every day that goes by in the last couple of weeks, I'm like writing down more and more questions, and I and I tell you what, I write down two to three times more questions than I'm getting answers for each and every day. So I I really appreciate the the perspective that you shared there. My last question for you is really like, how can we do better? Like, how can, how can our field right now in this moment, this is a cultural moment that we find ourselves in and, and, and we can move in any number of directions, but from your perspective, given the unique background that you've got, how can we do better right now as a community to move in the direction that we want to move? Um, I'm going to start with, with the little ones, if that's okay. Uh, I, I really do believe that the, we, you know, with education and language is, is huge. Um, our education just, I'm not saying like all programs are this way, but the majority of the ones that are in the verified core sequence do not address, um, understanding autism, um, just, and, and over 70% of us are in autism services. We, we don't, we're not really taught 
And I'm not saying, like I said, this isn't every core sequence. So please, if you did have this training, amazing. So glad that you have. But human development, like just normal human development. I'm not talking about neurotypical, all the, all the different things. Just like how our bodies develop and how like just create developmentally appropriate expectations not necessarily program, but expectations when running these programs. Um, like having a two and a half year old sit at a table for even like 15 minutes. No, man. Like, and I, just getting more understanding of human development would be huge for us because I, I think just that alone would reduce a ton of harm. Um, to some of these kids that have been just put through these programs and DTT to death. Um, it would become more functional. We would learn how to become like functional contextualists, which, mm. hello, you know, yeah. it would be amazing. Um, seek out autistic consultants and, and within behavior analysis and definitely outside of behavior analysis. Um, and if you do that, pay people for their time. <laughs> like, that is a thing, you know, and, and they're, they're just, they're an expert on, um, on a lived experience that you wouldn't otherwise have contact with. So definitely if you value their input, that's what that is status quo you need to do. Um, they, because autistics can help to, and while it's not like we know everyone, but they can help to inform, um, reinforcement, contingencies and establishing operations that you weren't thinking about. Like we mentioned the color yellow, you know, and like, Oh my gosh, like what if you just move this kid from one room that had yellow stripes all over the walls to a blue one, like just there's establishing operations that we might not have complete understanding of, um, and, and inform individualized supports, learn about the struggles that higher support needs caretakers have um because this like the autistic community as a whole not just the ones that who can talk but all of all need to be supported and we can reflect as a collective on how to do more to shape our science to better encompass the needs of all of the, that community by pulling in those caretakers and and getting maybe doing some qualitative data with that. Um, for verbal and unreliably, for, for non-speaking or unreliably speaking autistics, learn about autistic modes of communication. I think that's a huge um, area for growth within our field. Um, but, and humans in general, we, we communicate non-verbally 70 to 93% of our day. Not just... Autistic. So that I, to me, that's a strength. If I can learn, you know, how this person is communicating with me, we, there's, there's a whole thing to build off of there, you know? Um, and this can and should be a strength to learn more about autistic communication in general. Um, instead of trying ways to fix people, kind of tip the weight, the scales to support the person. And we had also mentioned this, yes, skills need to be taught. In addition to, um, they can be taught in a way that honors the person. So those supports are also huge um, because that leads to self advocacy. And you know, if, if the the 
overarching goals. So if you think about it and you teach a kid self-advocacy through the types of supports they need when they, if they get into a working position, that's something that, you know, would benefit them long-term. Hey, do you mind if I use lamps in my office or I'm, I'm not trying to be, um, you know, a thorn in your side, but I really need stuff written down for a meeting in addition to the speaking because it's hard for me to follow. Like those are like little things that, but you won't do that unless you you meet the scales here versus the onus is always on the person to fix themselves. Um, I call that the equalization process. Uh, and teaching skills and looking at ways to support a person in the settings that they wish to be included. So, you know, this is, that, that's, that's huge. There's, um, I have, I'll share, I have social anxiety. And so, and, and, you know, I know we're not supposed to say anxiety, but that the way that that presents is, um, nausea, very upset stomach, sweating, unable to talk, um, withdrawal. And this is, and I still do all the things in social settings, right? But there are things that, that I could advocate for to make it less so. So, um, and yeah, I want to go out and be with my friends and yes, I want to be included and it is hard. So I don't know. Those are the kind of things we can think about. Last thing, learn, learn about and create ascent procedures, um, for your practice. Um, ascent is more than a yes or no. It's like, it, it just is. It's more than a yes or no. What does that look like for the individual learner? Learn how to track it and shift your practice based on off your data. Um, can you teach it a different way? Like, why is this so hard for this person? Um, and, and it's not one of those things like you just shift in a day. That's what the data tells you to do, right? So you're like, oh, they didn't like it. We're done. No, it, it may have just been an off day where they had five A's before you saw the B. And the next day, not so much. So the data can inform your practice on shifting of programming. Um, and when somebody removes a scent, that's truly when like you and I become behavior analysts. Like what happened here? Where did the breakdown happen? So it, it's not pushing through a program. It's really sitting down and being like, all right, I, I honor your communication, whatever that looks like. And we're going to figure this out. Um, but if you'd like some quality training on Ascent and just implications for data collection on that, Warner Leland has an amazing CE on Behavior Live. And um, the Standard Acceleration Society has three or four that help with designing data-based plans. And um, there are two specific podcasts on atypical behavior done by a panel of autistics. And Central Reach also has wonderful training on Ascent as well. Those are all super helpful recommendations and uh, just insights, Summer, as to how we can do better as a field. I, I know uh, related to your first point, just like learning how how humans develop. Like I feel, I feel so grateful, and I, I think I took this for granted at the time. But like my wife and I, my wife's also a behavior analyst, uh, much better one than I am uh, for sure. <laughs> But we, we did our, you know, we, we both have undergrad degrees in child and adolescent development. And so we, at the time I was like, oh, I, I wish I would have gotten a degree in psychology or I wish I would have gotten an undergrad degree in behavior analysis. 
but really looking back, like those experiences were so like formative, like they really shaped us to, to go to like launch into our practice, being highly aware of uh, typical development in, in, in the context of all the work that we've ever done in, in behavior analysis, we've always had that in mind, like to the point where we have like developmental charts on our walls and, and, you know, we're, we're looking at how development should unfold so that we're not, you know, we're not including programming. That's just like totally unreasonable for any typically developing or for any kid, you know, two, three, four, you know, autism or not. Like, so I think those are very good. You make just so many, like, I'd love to talk to you all day about this. Uh, but I just appreciate again, the insight that, uh, that you have and that you are willing to share with, with all of us. So, before we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to chat about? I don't think so. It's been a week, and I just yeah. I do want to say thank you for for you know for doing this. Um, I, I I do want to say I think there's a misconception in the field that the autistic BCBAs do not believe in behavior analysis. Um, that is that is it's not true. <laughs> Um, we wouldn't continue to do what we do. And we can we do see areas that um, we we can all grow and, and learn from. Um, we are also on a consistent learning path as well. Um, and so it's just like come come join us, you know, and, and I know it's hard reaching out to some some in the autistic community, and I understand like the the terms and the the, the language that is used, but also understand that comes from somewhere. And while you know the quote unquote harms, um, you know we we get the well, you never experience this. Well, you know we do on a daily basis. You know it, it the 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 passion comes from a lived experience of living under having to, to be unsupported in ways and then not even knowing how, because we weren't ever taught how, but I think that's the pivotal point for our field is like, wow, what if we did provide kids these tools? Like what would their life look like? And, and, and it's not like, how can we, how can we reframe that to, I don't know. I, anyway, that's it, I guess. (laughs) No, you're you're right. Like if we're practicing within the framework of of social validity and and we're we're doing what we set out to do as behavior analysts and improving the quality of life for the people that again that we're entrusted to serve, then I see no other way. So, and Summer, you've been nothing but kind and generous uh, with with all the interactions I've had with you. I'm I am incredibly grateful. Like I I I really cannot express my gratitude uh, adequately enough just to just thank you again for sort of taking time to talk to me. Uh, we, you know, we, we had a brief phone call and then we tried to do this interview and we had just uh, our technical problems were uh, atrocious and, and here we are and we got it done. And you know what, what a gift, uh, what a gift this is to our community. So like just being able to hear from you directly is really wonderful. And I know you're not speaking for every autistic person or every autistic PCBA, but like, you know what, your experience is so encouraging. Like I feel more encouraged and I feel more empowered and I feel more motivated to do better, to like take, like move the mountain to try to figure out like, what can I be doing better? Like, I think I I have this friend who, who tells me that, um, 
uh, reality is your friend and like being self-aware of uh, be, just, just having self-awareness is so important. So like this whole experience has caused me to just be so much more self-aware of how I'm practicing and, and, and what I'm doing as a behavior analyst. And so I, I do appreciate uh, your insights. And I do think that at least in my case, you've helped me to do better, right? You've, you've encouraged me to do better. So uh, and I'm going to have like a million more questions for you. Probably we don't have to record all every time we talk, um, but uh, I really do appreciate you taking time to to talk with me. It's been super delightful. Thanks for having me, Robbie.